Gosh, it's hard work sometimes. Sometimes you just you turn into a monster. You just need to. The kid just needs to shut the fuck up. <laughs> Welcome to Psycho Cinematic, a podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular film and TV. I'm your host, Stephanie Fanasia. We acknowledge the ancestors, elders and families of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who are the traditional owners and custodians of the land we're recording this podcast on today. We pay respect to the deep knowledge embedded within the Aboriginal community and their ownership of country by elders, past, present and emerging. Thanks for that acknowledgement of country, Michael. Thanks for inviting me to spake it. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? How much COVID do you have today? I'm on day... Five? Yeah, yeah, you are. I'm fine. It didn't hit you too badly? I had a bad 24 hours. You got through it much better than I did. I've had four doses of my vacky back though. Yeah, but you are immunocompromised. But I'm not, okay? <laughs> but yeah, I had it before Michael, everyone, and I felt like shit. <laughs> are you proud? The whole like, time. Is that, was that? Is no, it, no, just It's not a race. It's not a race, <laughs> no, Scott Morrison. If it was a race, we would have lost because it took us two and a half years to catch it. <laughs> yeah. But I'm sort of almost glad that we have come through it so that we know what it's like, I guess. I would have liked to have had it um, after five doses. Wouldn't we all, Michael? So today we are bringing you a movie that you would not let me watch with you. For many years. <laughs> I think, no, you're getting that. People are going to find what you just said very confusing. The number of times that we scrolled through this film on various streamers and Steph was like, let's watch this movie. And I was like, nope, <laughs> very too afraid. And then, I don't know, we were just running out of things to watch one night. I was like, come on, we're going to do it. And he said, all right. And I acquiesced. And now we're talking about it for a whole podcast episode. How do you feel? If you haven't guessed by now, well, I feel... Fine now. It's the Bob. Bob. <laughs> Dork. 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 <laughs> yes. Uh, and like, I kind of knew that it would have some elements of, of stuff that would be relevant for this podcast, but it really does. So yeah, it's um, it was a no-brainer. It's a it's a it's a mental illness film. It is a huge mental illness film in so many ways. And it's a horror film, which you don't like. Well, I had just heard so many stories about how scary it is. It is scary. But what did you think? Did you think it was as scary as people said? No. It's creepy, but I'm just going to say right off the bat, the production values are really shit. It looks like Australian short film that you'd see at the Brisbane Film Festival or Flickerfest or something. Do they still do Flickerfest? To be... Hit us up, (laughs) Flickerfest. Well, actually, they had to reduce... The budget for this film because it was by Jennifer Kent, who is an Australian film. It's like it's an Australian film, and it's she's an Australian director. She did The Nightingale, right? She did, which she did after the Bubble yeah, Book, yeah. yeah. And she she did um, Chopper, didn't she? Okay, no one understands your humor, Michael. Um, she did not do Chopper, everyone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Jennifer Kent sought out to make a very specific film and she worked with Lars von Trier on the set of Dogville to get some experience, obviously to get some experience in directing, not to get some experience (laughs) of being a Nazi because Lars von Trier is a Nazi and also a very awful person. Is he a Nazi? I thought... Oh, yeah. Wait, doesn't he... He said some Nazi I'm thinking of Roman Polanski. Oh, he's got other things going on. (laughs) So she really wanted to get people to collaborate with this film and really struggled to find people within the Australian film industry. So she got some people from like Poland and an American illustrator 
for, to do the illustrations. Meanwhile, I have a film degree and uh, you could have I, don't, helped. I don't remember getting any phone calls. Well, in the end, she kind of blew out her budget. She had to reduce it and they ended up doing a Kickstarter for the rest of the film to raise about 30 grand. So there's a reason why the production value isn't as high as it could be because they didn't have a huge budget um, and she was very ambitious with this film, I think. But I still think it's an excellent film. I thought it was a good movie. I just thought it looked a bit shit. But you know what? People don't care because it got really popular. Yeah. Yeah, no, so that's good. Yeah. Shall I take you through the plot? Yes, please. All right. So Amelia, played by Essie Davis, who's a fucking star, lives with her only son Samuel, Noah Wiseman, who's still afraid of monsters under the bed or in the closet. She proves to him repeatedly there's nothing to be afraid of, but he keeps on making a big deal out of his fear. This adds to her own stress from the loss of her husband, who had died on the way to the hospital when Amelia was in labour because they got into a car accident. She was in labour with Sam. With Sam, yeah. And the dad died on the way to hospital. To the hospital, yeah. Yeah. Rough. One day, Amelia tells Sam he can choose a book to read as a bedtime story, and he chooses a book called Mr. Babadook which scared Sam so much he ends up crying and screaming into Amelia's lap as she reads a different book to try and calm him. Amelia later looks at the book. It says that the Babadook will come to a kid in a disguise, demanding to let it in, then ask the same to the mother, and then it'll get rid of its disguise and haunt them. But the last pages are empty. Amelia then hides the book from Sam, but as the days go on, Sam gets more and more fixated and terrified about the Babadook. So Amelia tears the Babadook's images from the book and tosses them all in the garbage. Afterwards, Samuel, who's a bit of a mischievous kid, it seems, starts to blame the Babadook for his mischiefs. Amelia feels he's only making it up until she starts to feel weird things. One day, the front door is knocked on and there's nobody there when she opens it. The knocking continues and when Amelia opens the door again, she finds the book, the Babadook book, with the torn pages glued back into it. Also, the empty pages are filled with the images of the Babadook shadowing the mother and then her killing her son. Amelia then burns the book, but she gets more and more paranoid and stressed as weirder things happen to the point that Amelia is afraid to sleep. She stays up for two nights in a row, but as Samuel asks for her care, Amelia has episodes of sudden anger outbursts with her voice changing at times. The second night she catches Sam calling their neighbour next door, who's quite elderly, Mrs Roach, to try and get some help. But Amelia stops him. Amelia dismisses the neighbour but continues her rage by killing their dog. Sorry, I should have done a warning there. And then chasing (laughs) after Samuel. She catches up to him, but he knocks her out by throwing something hard at her. Amelia wakes up tied with Sam refusing to leave her. Her episodes make her choke Sam as he gets near to hug her, but then her inner self wins as Sam strokes her cheek. So at this point, the Babadook is like possessed Amelia. Mm. Amelia then vomits all this black stuff and Sam says she's free, but Sam tells her she can't make the Babadook go away. Then Sam is dragged away by an invisible force, but Amelia confronts the force and says, You're trespassing in my house! The Babadook manifests itself as a shadow but runs away to the basement where Amelia shuts it away. Things seem to go back to normal afterwards and Amelia and Sam prepare for Sam's seventh birthday party, which is also the day, obviously, of Sam's father's death so it was never really celebrated. Amelia collects some worms and maggots and then brings them to feed the thing in the basement, the Babadook. Wow. The end. The end. 
What a tale. What a tale. Very similar to Hereditary. Yeah, very similar. It's like quite, themes. quite, quite. There's themes of grief. There's themes of depression. There's themes of postnatal depression. Motor vehicle accident related death. Mm-hmm. Also, Sam being, it seems like a not so neurotypical kid or is coded as maybe a kid with some sort of developmental behavioral difficulties because, mm. um, yeah, the school wants to kick him out and um, he's bringing knives to school and stuff like that. And Mm. it sounds like Amelia has to work very hard with Sam from what we see. Yeah. Uh, Not that that there was really any of that in Hereditary, but but there's a theme in there. Shall we talk about lived experience? Yes. Of the various (laughs) stakeholders of the film? Yes. Um, So I learned a lot about Jennifer Kent and I haven't seen her next film, which was The Nightingale, but I really want to now. I wanted to see it, but I I also heard that it opened with a fairly confronting scene Mm. and that it was all in all a fairly confronting film. Yeah, people like walked out of that movie, Mm. I heard. Mm. So she, she likes a horror tale. And did you know she is married to Justin Kurzel, who directed Nitram? Ah, and Snowtown, right? yeah. So right. they both like a really fucking harrowing film, <laughs> and and it was interesting. Like I couldn't help but read a little bit about how he directed Nitram. Um, is that how you say it or Nitram? I'm, I don't know if I'm saying it's it right. It's just Martin backwards. I guess it doesn't matter how we say it then. Yeah, right. Yeah. The name it's the name of the. I didn't killer. Think, I didn't think that the guy who uh, you're right. It is. You're right. What's his name? Martin. Martin Br- Bryant. Bryant. Yeah. yeah. And he and Essie Davis uh, grew up in Tasmania, so they knew so many people who were affected by the Port Arthur massacre. Mm. He's obviously drawn to lots of Australian stories that he's been affected by, um, and I think she is too. Oh my God! Sorry, it's not Jennifer Kent who's married to Justin Kurzel. It's Essie Davis, oh the main character God. who's married to him. Well, that changes everything. That changes everything. But obviously, the cast itself are very of the similar mind, similar ilk. <laughs> yeah, the people that made this film. Well, tell us, tell us about Jay Kent's. Jay Kent. Jennifer has talked to a fair few people about how she wanted to tell a story about facing up to the darkness within ourselves and the quote-unquote fear of going mad and also exploring parenting from a very real perspective. She sort of explained that to an interviewer, I think it was Den of Geek maybe, I'm not saying we all want to go and kill our kids but a lot of women struggle and it's a very taboo subject to say that motherhood is anything but a perfect experience for women. To the point when I tried to look for research and I found it very hard to find anything on the subject, which is... I find that hard to believe. Well, this was this was in October 2014, so this wasn't long after it came out. And I think that I feel like there's been a lot more research on postpartum depression since 2014 than at that time. I think it's a bit more recent. Because of the Babadook? Yeah, because of the Babadook. Wow. <laughs> what a pivotal film. What a pivotal film. Um, and also in terms Tully. Of- no. <laughs> In terms of re- research, though, eight years isn't that long. Yeah, it takes a long time for research. You know, I don't know it. the, I don't know, but I'm almost certain there'd be plenty of research. Well, she's not a scientist; she's a director, so you know, you've mm. got to give her some cred there. Yeah, all right. Hit me up, Jennifer Ken. I'll give you my university login. So it doesn't sound like Jennifer herself had kids, which is a surprise to me because I feel like she really kind of nails 
the trickiness of being a parent, especially a single parent. Um, but she did say she had a friend who had a child who was really having trouble connecting with her son. He was about three or four and he kept seeing a monster man everywhere. And the only way she could get him to calm down was to get rid of it as if it was real. And so Jennifer said, well, what if it actually was real? And that's how she actually made a short called Monster before she made the Babadook. And that's mm. how she, that came about. So it sounds like she doesn't have actual lived experience of, say, grief post. Well, she hasn't spoken about any grief um, experience that she has or depression, mm. anxiety, but she definitely hasn't got any postpartum experience. But she drew on real people to portray them or at least for, it drew on real experiences. She did also want the characters to be very loving and lovable so that we really feel for them and portray human relationships in a positive light which is interesting because I feel like most people who have watched this movie find Samuel really annoying. He's very, very annoying. <laughs> yeah. He's not likable. He's not this. He's not the like, most likable kid. And he's yeah. also not the most typically cute kid too, no, which I actually really like. Like he's you cute can, in his you own You can relate way. to the mum. Yeah, yeah. Wanting to. She hurt. nails that bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a really, really irritating. It would, especially when he, like the one of the first scenes that we see her kicking the back of the car seat, like mm. that would shit me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. fucking stop. <laughs> so she does, I feel like she really does nail it, even though she's really not, she's obviously come at it from some experience of herself, but not specific to what's happening in the film. Not a pass. Not a pass, no. But sorry, Jay Kent. But um, I still respect her. You can respect somebody if they don't have lived experience. Yeah, you can. can you? You can. <laughs> Do you agree with that statement? <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Like, I'm not mad about it. Could have fooled me. <laughs> Essie Davis. I've seen her in so many things over the years. She's probably most popular as like Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Yes, <laughs> um, she is Miss Fisher. I didn't know that. Didn't you? Hot diggity dog. Do you watch that? Yeah. She's <laughs> no. such a liar. No, I don't watch it. Oh, she's also in Nitrum, where her, her um, husband's film. And she is, she was like, she played one of the characters in Cloud Street. I remember seeing her in that. And I don't mm. know, I just was really drawn to her. I don't know what it is. But yeah, she was so good in this movie. She, she is just, good. Oh, she's just so drained and exhausted. She's also a mother of twin daughters, so like she, she already must really passes. <laughs> get the shits. Yeah. She must really understand it. She has talked about her kids, and there's a lot of Wikipedia quotes actually, so I didn't have to do too much deep diving. But she says, "I have children, and they demand my full and complete attention. They get that when I'm at home, even during the night. But it is really hard, and I do wonder how a lot of women do it without bawling their eyes out every day." And she also said she was terrified of be being a mum because she didn't think she'd ever be grown up enough. But I'm sure she agrees with me that you don't have to be grown up to be a mum. No. I'm a little child <laughs> raising a child. I mean, like, yeah, she's raised some kids. She can understand that it's hard. But it must be really hard to be a mum of twins with a with a dad who's a, a director, like a decent, like a big director, big Australian director anyway. There's no Baz Luhrmann. But you wouldn't want that. Um, and a mum I mean, like, who's a quite... A big, a big Australian director works like once every three years or something, but to know, be fair. you have to work in the harsh Australian desert, Mike. <laughs> yeah, you have to work in the UQ car park for Mad Max. But Essie's um, in a lot of stuff. Yeah, she sense? sounds like she's probably the busier member of the... The family. Marriage. 
oh, being a director is not like, it's hard shit. Anyway, I've done it. I've done it. You know, it must be really hard to raise two kids who are both babies. <laughs> yeah, look. It, 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 and it, have a career at the same time. It must be hard. I'm not calling it lived experience though. Because they're probably richer than we were and that S.E. Davis in this in well, her, her character husband. Was. There's no okay. like major massive trauma. Like I feel this oh, movie is about. As far as we know, um, but you know, the, you don't have to have lived experience in every aspect. Yeah, of I, know, for it to pass. I know, I know, I know, I um, know. I'm just skeptical. I'm just being biased, but also, you know, there's no comparison of trauma or, or of of hardness too. You can have experienced a little bit to draw on it. I think so. I think that's good. Also, they um, Jennifer Ken and Essie Davis went to NIDA together. Which is the oh, big probably, drama academy in probably Australia. Probably traumatized by night. <laughs> but you know, they were friends, so of course they Jeez. drew on each other. That's all I really got for lived experience. I didn't look into Noah Wiseman, who, you know, was seven when children, he was in this movie. Children don't um, have I would really hope that he doesn't have any lived experience of this movie where <laughs> um he was born on his dad's death day and uh had to like save his mum from a from a, yeah. a um, monster, so yeah, didn't look into him. And also there's no information because he's a child, which is good. But that's what we want from the internet. You don't have to keep justifying this. <laughs> People understand. You're mad at me tonight. <laughs> mad as hell. Mad as a cut snake. <laughs> gonna take it anymore. All right, let's talk about the accuracy of this film. To sort of summarise what Jennifer Kent was sort of wanting to portray in this movie. I think this quote is really good. She says, for me, what was horrific was what had happened to this woman and the fact that she couldn't face it was her greatest terror. So the terror of not being able to face something was always at the core of what she's done. And I think that sort of describes it really well. It's an unusual film for us, kind of, because like normally when we do accuracy, we're looking at criteria. Mm. We're not really going to do that today, I don't no, think. No, no, yeah. no, and and I don't I don't think it's appropriate. This is more of like a therapeutic film yeah. in a way as opposed to a diagnostic film. Yeah, and is <laughs> and is the 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 journey that she goes on like a, almost an accurate journey of of what it what it's a metaphor for. Well, yeah, so you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, the monster is her grief and trauma. Yes. Loss of... And depression. A significant other under very traumatic circumstances. And then the effect that had on her bonding with Samuel. Yes. Because and she had to have a life. newborn baby and also deal with the death of her husband. Yeah. And then also, like, dealing with the monster, quote unquote. Yeah. Is all about, like, accepting that it's there... And coexisting with it. Yeah. You're never going to be able to defeat it, like, you know, eradicate it. Yeah. You just have to kind of tend to it and deal with it. Do you think you have more experience actually giving, providing therapy to people? Mm -hmm. Is that like a reasonable, within the limitations of a 90 minute film, re a reasonably accurate depiction of what dealing with trauma looks like? 100%. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 100% accuracy. <laughs> No, just like, because so many films about monsters, and we've talked about this before, come from an actual fear of some sort of concept or something involving society that's coming up at the time, whatever zeitgeisty thing is going on. And often a lot of really good horror films that we like are about sort of mental illness or that fear of going quote unquote crazy or whatever. But in a lot of it, it's like, oh, we defeated the monster and we can all go back to normal and everything's fine and it's over. Mm. So many, most films, that's kind of the ending. But in this film, it's like, no, no, no. Just like the book says, 
you cannot get rid of the Babadook. He will never go away. Mm. And it really like shows how she needed to not only accept that, but also feed it. Like she can't just ignore it. She can't just like pretend it's not there. She has to acknowledge that it's there and she actually has to tend to it and give it care. Mm. And that is just the most beautiful, just the most perfect analogy of what it's like to live with grief and trauma every day, particularly something as effectual as it is for her relationship with her son because you know you can look at it from a from broad perspective and like the, the babadook is grief and trauma and you can't just ignore trauma if you do ignore it it will get worse and you won't even realize it affects you until it ends up consuming you or the the, the way it affects you ends up consuming you and it can destroy relationships it can affect yours and others life and hurt yourself and hurt others um, if it's unchecked but when you throw a child into the mix too, it's like seeing how, you know, the more she ignored the Babadook and the more she let it sort of infiltrate her, the more traumatic experience she was passing on to her son as well mm. because the more she did wasn't treating him with love and affection and care and the more he could continue that cycle of trauma um, that he would have to deal with for the rest of his life as well. Mm. And obviously he's born from trauma. That will probably always be there with him. But because she's managing the Babadook, he has a much more bright future. Mm. Mm. That's the end of the episode, I think. <laughs> <laughs> How accurate a depiction of, you know, like a demonic entity that has an avatar as a children's picture book. <laughs> Did you find it? <sighs> <laughs> He's gone. Um, so I didn't give you much of an opening to ask more questions, I guess. So that's on me. I just sort of <laughs> said, well, that's the end, isn't it? I want to acknowledge too, I think a really important thing to recognise is that she's not at fault for what's happening. Like I can't see any other way she probably would have been able to deal with the fact. She killed that dog. Oh, no, that's her fault. But <laughs> like she couldn't process the trauma. Like as soon as Samuel was born, she was also left without a husband mm. um, or a support person essentially. So she's got this little newborn who needs 100% of her love and attention and the worst thing in the world has just happened to her. Mm. So she doesn't have time to think or do anything. And how, how old is Sam in when we... Se I think seven at the end of the film. So, like, she's sort of just blocked it off for seven years. Just to, so, yeah. And so she can be there far. for Samuel. But mm. it's, she's yeah, she's got him this far. And he's at school and, yeah, he's a little she's, weird at first. She's doing a really, like, you know, and that's, that's a really important thing too. It's not about blaming mums for going through this and for having to, or for whoever's going through the trauma, having to ignore the trauma. Like it's not it's meant to be sort of a blamey film. It's just like, okay, you've gone through it. Now you have to actually face that trauma, um, which she obviously hasn't even tapped into because she can't. Like you remember what it was like having Casper when he was born. Like your entire life is devoted to that child. And even when you did have to go back to work, like we were working from home. So it was like every five minutes. <laughs> like, I'm like Casper's doing this. You know, your sleep is fucked too. And like I really like the depiction of how fucked her sleep is. And also as, you know, his sleep as well. And it's very parallel with, our, with my sleep, our sleep at the moment too, yeah. because Casper's often in our bed. It's, it's like she has to live life sleepwalking and just get on with 
whatever she needs to do at the time with as much energy as she can give. Mm. And that's how you would just have to handle it when you're just by yourself, especially given that Sam is a kid with maybe a few more extra needs than other kids as well. Mm. It's like, it's so relatable. It's super relatable. And I'm, you know. I... How did you relate to it in terms of the, the parenthood stuff? I guess that I, you know, I, I liked that it was kind of a warts and all look at parenting. And mm. I was I was about to say, you know, my experience of parenting has been like, you know, the highs are really, really high and the lows are like dizzyingly low mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever the right word Dizzy. Was. There aren't really any highs in terms of parenting in this movie. No, no, in this in the movie, in the movie. Oh, right. I don't know. It's nice to feel a bit seen in that respect. I think what really related well to me is just that while you were away from work, that sort of day in day out, wake up or wake up with child in bed, (laughs) be at their beck and call as much as you can till you go to work, and then come back and and deal with it all over again and then go to bed and try and get some sleep and then they want you to come to bed. And that sort of rigmarole that that over and over again, that really rang true to me. And, of course, I've got a lot more support than it seems that Amelia had in this film. And, you know, it wasn't anywhere near as as uh, hor- horrific <laughs> as this film was. Mm. You know, there were moments um, in the last, you know, couple of months where when things got a bit hard where I was like, I can see myself turning into the Babadook. <laughs> Yeah. And just like, you know, feeling a bit like Essie Davis's character in this film and going, oh, God, no. Mm, mm. <laughs> am, I, am I turning? Yeah, but, you know, it's it's obviously a different kind of situation from what goes on in this film, but I feel like they really nail that when you have no energy or when you're going through something yourself, how hard it is to be there for your kid when they're at their lowest too. Yeah, and obviously it resonates with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I think that I guess the biggest fear in the film is the fear of being a bad mum, which I have constantly. Mm. And I know you have that fear too. Yeah, and I don't know, just guilt is guilt guilt and worry are such central parts of parenting, you know, feeling guilty that what you've done is bad and feeling worried that what you're going to do next is going to be bad too. And then <laughs> and then if you do something good, you think, oh, have I spoiled them for, yeah. for, for then, them being happy right guilty. now? Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's nothing, you, you can't do anything right sometimes. No. Yeah. I guess that's why motherhood and parenthood and birth and children are such a common thing, Meta- metaphor, theme yes. in horror. Yes, I was reading an article from someone who related really hard to this movie who was just saying, like, this is what she said, there's the ever-present fear that every parent has of their child being in danger, but there's also the fear of your own identity getting shifted and transmuted after childbirth. How does being a parent change your fundamental self? Still, it's rare for a film to reckon with the messy bits of parenthood, those moments that don't make easy fodder for a mummy blog or fun anecdotes, moments when you simply don't have the patience or energy to be the parent your child wants and needs you to be. And I just totally agree with that, especially that mummy blog stuff because it's so mummy Instagrammers too, particularly. And yeah. there's so much that I follow it. And I'm guilty of it too. I'll post to be like, Casper and I had a really good interaction today where I like taught him about emotions and it was gorgeous and you could do this <laughs> Two guys and that's like like 0.5 percent of, of motherhood those moments and also that fear of losing your identity I've always had that as a mum but I think um I think the reason that like motherhood and 
bodily type things. Mm. I think it's more core than that. I think of like alien mm. um, things exploding out of people's bodies yes. and like the death and the pain and the Leaving your the body violence. in ruin. Yeah. yeah. Well, motherhood is a violent thing. Most people at some point of childbirth could have could die very very you know it's a it's a very fine line between life and death as a doctor you could you reel agree? that you could reel that back in touch but yeah it is <laughs> it's high stakes stuff it's really high stakes like you know if we didn't have the medical system we had a lot of kids would die <laughs> in childbirth yeah you know um they did often back in primitive days like all horror is about a terror of a change Yes, yes. It's all about change. You, the viewer. Yes. And yeah, what could be more of a change than child rearing? Yeah. And then it's a horror film, so you need to make a fucking ghoul or whatever. But it's also for for her in this movie, like her identity is pretty much gone because it's just trying to get by and she's not you know, you see her with the interaction with her colleague who's obviously a romantic interest, but he's interested in her and she's just like, nah. <laughs> like, mm. She's not allowing herself to have anything that's herself. Props though, she does try to masturbate, which I don't know how she'd have the energy to do that. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> inaccurate. <laughs> that is one inaccuracy. You know, she's really, she's lost her husband in a tr- very traumatic situation and now she's a mum. She's got a oh, and she's just trying to pay the bills. She's got no room for identity. So it's completely stripped away from her. So it's scary. That is it's fucking scary. terrifying. Yeah, it's yeah. scary without the – and that's why it resonates. And that's why, you know, the Babadook isn't the, the enemy. I mean, the Babadook is no good. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Babadook. Do we want to talk about some of the other characters? Yes. Samuel, as I said before – He's kind of coded as like neurodivergent or, or obviously he's got some behavior issues at school, um, some social trickiness. He doesn't have a lot of friends. He pushes his uh, cousin out of a tree. Samuel. <laughs> Samuel. He brings a weapon to school and like Amelia really struggles with him, particularly the fact that he still believes in monsters and makes weapons to kill them. But he was right. They were real in the end. I mean like the last job that I did – you're like not- <laughs> we got, you know, we got new referrals of new kids every day and then you'd present them at the meeting the following day and, like, I'm just imagining, like, you know, uh, you know, we got a call yesterday from mother, seven-year-old boy, you know, he's a bit dysregulated, mm-hmm. he's got some odd beliefs about monsters mm-hmm. and, you know. Low social skills. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, like, bread and Textbook, butter. yeah. Child and adolescent same, like, mental I'm- health. It's true. It's, like... Accurate for how trying, these kids present. I'm trying not to like put labels on him by just sort of explaining what happens in the movie, but I, you know, I've seen lots of kids like him in in schools that I've worked with. Yeah, totally right. But you don't. But like, you know, he'd come through a psychiatrist assessment with like, you know, it'd be like query ADHD, query autism, query o- oppositional defiant yeah. disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, and they and and in the end, they would just be like, uh depression with traits of all three of those things. And they'd probably chuck in borderline or something. <laughs> like fucking <you laughs> No, know, like- no, boys don't get diagnosed with borderline. <laughs> if he was female, he would, even yeah. though he's seven. But like, um, you know, they 
the psychiatrists want to put a label on it. I'm sure you'd agree that it's just trauma. Yeah, it's yeah. Like it just boils. But you know, he could also be neurodivergent. Like he, mm. um, he has a very rich imagination about monsters. He also seems maybe he's got some sensory stuff. I don't know. Possibly. His self stims with constant screaming. He screams a lot. And, like, I felt for Amelia a lot. Yeah. Um, it shows how grating it can be to, even though you want to be very affirming and loving and, uh, and, and supportive of kids like Samuel, but, gosh, it's hard work sometimes. Sometimes you just... You turn into a monster. You just need to... The kid just needs to shut the fuck up. <laughs> that has been no, my one God. of my experiences. Yeah, but you know what? Sometimes it's a need that's not being met... I'm doing the best I can. I Casper, I'm doing the best. <laughs> but they're too li- they don't have the skills I know. yet I'm to tell kidding. us what the need <laughs> I'm is. Just joking. So we have to work it out for ourselves and sometimes it's very hard. Yeah. And sometimes the need is to scream. <laughs> but it's interesting though that Kent says that she wanted to make the two main characters really like lovable and relatable. I've find it hard to believe that a lot of people see Samuel that way, view, viewers, viewership-wise. I think that what you could see is that despite what, what I could see, despite Amelia really having a tough time, she did genuinely love her son mm. unconditionally. But that's not about him, that's about her. Like that but makes you, could you like see her that more. in the film. I that makes you, you like her more, bond. but I don't think anybody likes Samuel, except for her. I don't think the audience likes Samuel. I, I think she she may have stuffed up there. But you're right. <laughs> yeah. It's like you you say, you know, that he's, I believe your words were, he's, a, he's pug ugly. I think that's what you said. <laughs> I think you said no, pug. I didn't. You said pug ugly. No, she didn't. I'm just joking. You said that the he's, not a, said was, he's not a typically. This is what I said. The face only a mother could love, <laughs> namely Essie Davis. <laughs> <laughs> but he's also not like a perfectly behaved Perfect um, kid, yeah. I don't know, Matilda or... Uh, yeah, like they hate Matilda and she's a perfect child. Okay. Oh, I didn't want to <laughs> no, open no, that can. No, 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 I'm just... Yeah, we could go into that. But, you know, you're right. Like he's not a perfect kid. He's not... He's not a... He's Yeah, he's not a typically like photogenic kid. He's not a typically well-behaved kid. He's pretty irritating. He's and like we... To, he's hard to parent sometimes. Yeah. And that... And, and Amelia plays It's hard to find audience. sometimes in a film. Yeah. Amelia plays the audience. She's frustrated by him. We're frustrated by him. Yeah. He's frustrating. But at the same time, like in the scenes in the, like with the school and stuff, like she's a fierce advocate for him at the same time. Like she wants the best for him and she does deeply love him. That's the other (laughs) thing. Like he's, he's a troubled kid and the school's just like, oh, fuck him. (laughs) And you know what? The school wants to kick him out. That's fucking accurate. It is 100 billion percent accurate. It's 100% accurate. accurate. I have... I obviously will not name names, but I have been. Name one. Name one. Throw one under the bus. Okay, I'm not even going to say that I've (laughs) been in schools. I'm just going to say I know of schools who will try and force a kid out rather than expel them because they're not allowed to. To just, you know, so here's another option. Have you thought about this? Or maybe there's this behavior channel you can go into so you've got it like a different sort of set up school for your child mm. because they just want to get rid of them because they're too hard yeah. and they can't do that anymore. No, no, no. No. No, no, no. But, you know, they'll, they'll they'll pull some strings or go through different channels so they're not, like, doing anything they're not supposed to. 
by not just expelling because you have to go through a process before expelling a kid because mm. every child has the right to an education mm. at whatever school they're available to, to attend. So it's sadly a really accurate part of the film and this is an Australian film yeah. in Australia. But hopefully with new reform and stuff that will be a bit better. I don't know anything about it. Oh, the reform. <laughs> <laughs> It's my bread and butter. <laughs> Michael, what did you think of the sister character as like someone who's watching someone go through what Amelia goes through? She gets a bad rap. Mm. I mean. Amelia or the sister? The sister. Mm. Like, you know, I've seen people in my life who are trying to support someone going through a shitty time and they often end up quite burnt out. Mm. And I've seen them just be, just step away entirely. Mm-hmm. And from an outsider watching that happen, it's often like, oh, you can't just walk away. Like, Mm. they're struggling. Mm. But also people only have so much energy and it's a dog-eat-dog world, everyone everyone for themselves. I'm partially just joking. But I think, like, (laughs) the sister, like, even though she's quite cunty at the party and stuff. Yeah. Was it at the party or talking about the party? Or I can't. She's yeah. a bit cunty. Yeah, she's a cunty woman. But also, yeah, she wants to protect her daughter, who Samuel is a little bit aggressive toward, quite mm. aggressive towards, and she's also spent seven years, I assume, trying to support her sister mm. and her, like support Amelia. I mean, it, yeah, it's hard to just. Yeah. It's hard to make like a. It's hard to just be like right the sister. I feel is like this. I feel like she was portrayed with a bit more nuance than just being like. It wasn't very on the nose. Haven't used one of those for a while. Um, in like, you've, you've just become more nuanced. <laughs> it, she's not like black and white. I'm the bitch sister, and I don't mm. really care. And I'm sick of having to deal with Amelia's shit. Mm. Um, like you can tell that she's been through a lot, and um, it's more of a point of frustration because she doesn't know what more she can do, and nothing seems to be getting better. Like feels that it's all a bit pointless. Um, and then when a daughter gets hurt, it's like, oh, nah, that's that's my limit, which I get. Mm. Like, yeah. I get that. It's not unreasonable. But it's really hard when Amelia doesn't really have any other support persons apart from the, a next-door neighbour who it seems like she's got, like, Parkinson's or she... She's coded Parkinson's. She's coded Parkinson's. Oh, no, doesn't he? Doesn't... Oh, it's just not well acted. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, doesn't she say to um, Samuel that she has Parkinson's? I, I, I think so. Yeah. I can't remember. Now, sorry. Anyway, I guess she's. We're supposed to know that she's quite a frail old woman. Like she yeah. can't do a lot for herself. She, um, you know, Amelia takes. That being said, she's walking around to the neighbor's house and stuff. Like she's doing. She's actually doing pretty well. But you know, she's not someone that Amelia can rely on for yeah. more like. Yeah, sorry. Physical yeah. things, you know, yeah. like she doesn't have a strong a person who could like uh, do the plumbing for it, like call it like fix the plumbing or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've got a hole in my wall. All these cockroaches keep coming out of. Can you? Can hey, you hey, doll next door, come over and fix it. So yeah, I, I think I like I didn't like the sister, and I feel like she could have probably. You done weren't it. meant to. No, we weren't meant to. Like we were supposed to see her as like a support that was there that's not there anymore who turn who gets turned away from Amelia but I think which I think is like the uh, message in the film of where particularly with depression when that takes over you completely you end up pushing away a lot of people in your life even though they could be helpful for you but has Amelia pushed her the well, sister away more, or the sister's pushed I think I think it's more the sister but I think that's the message anyway I think it's just like mental illness can isolate you I think it's just like yeah Kara Fatigue. Burnout. His sister isn't really that much of a carer, though, let's be honest. When are we going to talk about the monster? 
people really related to this movie, as I said before. One journalist who is a single mum with two children on the autism spectrum who also has major depression and anxiety, when she saw the film she saw lots of really familiar, relatable moments that made her heart ache. And she said, which I'm sure I will relate to more in the future as well when I've got more than one if I do, I love my children, my children overwhelm me and sometimes I feel like I'm falling apart, falling and I'm going to break them along with me. I think she really nailed this depiction in 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 all those ways. Mm. So, yeah, the Babadook, the monster itself. Like, I don't know, the CGI is a bit naff. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I like that it's, it becomes present. You know, she tries to deny it. It keeps coming up. It gets stronger and stronger the more she denies it. Then she sort of starts going into a really dark place she even gets medication to try and make help her sleep and Samuel sleep to sort of numb it. And that is such a key with, for me with depression, I find it hard to sleep, but some, for some people, they just, all they can do is sleep. And it's like just escape from the bad feelings. Um, and sometimes it's that depression that makes you become really catatonic and just sleep all the time. But the fact that she just tries to knock her and Samuel out, it's like if we just sleep, then we don't have to worry about the Babadook mm. uh, and we'll just get some sleep. Like I feel like that was a really good analogy as well with mental illness. It's very avoidant too, which yeah. is classic so post-traumatic. Classic. And also like the way that once it does like just overwhelm her, it's this big black mass that mm. just like turns up and it's absolutely terrifying and then um, just – she's possessed by it and then becomes all the things that she doesn't want to become. Like it really plays on that fear of how mental illness can, you know, that worry of it overtaking you so that you become someone you don't want to be. Yeah. I really get that. Mm, mm. And that's the Babadook. Yeah. Apparently what one of Jennifer Kent's friends described her when she went to the screening, Jennifer Kent said she came to a screening and there's a moment where um, the Babadook or a figure glides towards the child and it's huge. And she burst into tears when she saw that because she thought, wow, I didn't realize how big I must have seemed to my kids when they're that little and how we all want to be loving and perfect, but we often fail in that. Hmm. And I get that too. Sometimes when I'm having an interaction with Casper and I'm having to be a little bit like tough love or stop him from doing something. I think, God, he probably thinks I'm this awful, like imagine seeing me from his eyes. Like, you know, if he's going back to a memory of that, does he see me as this really awful, like. Mm, like an eternal sunshine. person. From under the table. Yeah. But like not nice. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> um, that resonated a bit with me too. But like kids, kids are small. And How terrifying is that? Everything no, is but so it's not, big. It's not terrifying because it's the world as it is. Like. That's what it is to them. Yeah, but this It's like when you go back to a place that you've only ever been when you're a kid and you're like, oh, fuck, this place is tiny now. But when you were there as a kid, it seemed bigger because you were smaller. Yeah. But you didn't think it was weird. It was just, well, this is the size that I am. But I have memories of being really little and being very overwhelmed by people being big or um, I remember our living room being enormous but it obviously wasn't and you know molly grubs was on the tv and oh if anyone's seen How molly grubs we have to let's talk about molly grubs micro council molly <laughs> grubs terrifying there's a face with no it's just an eyes and a mouth and it's harrowing you get it not you never saw has it. noses um michael you must have missed molly grubs i've seen i've seen the pictures 
that <laughs> nothing will beat the actual experience. And seeing I, that on the TV that was right up here. I want to put a pin in this, Steph. I'd like to put a pin in this. And feeling like I'm going to die. But you know what? You need to feed your trauma. Stereotypes? Look, I feel like it subverts stereotypes more than anything else. I feel like the horror tropes that we usually see, like no one actually dies in this film and I thought someone was going to die. We mm. all thought the neighbour was going to die. Yeah. She doesn't die. But she's almost a symbol, I was doing some reading, of how Amelia is a kind person really because you know, the neighbour really relies on Amelia for some things. Mm. You know, Amelia still makes the time to help the neighbour out even though she's got a million things on her head, yeah. on, her, on her mind, and that, you know, the, the neighbour sticks around, nothing bad happens to her and lives to tell the tale and is still in their lives. It's like she's allowed to still have kindness in her life mm. um, and that's an important thing. I thought that was good. I think we spoke about it with um, Butterfly Effect, mm. the stereotype that, like, trauma is the root cause of... But it is in this movie. <laughs> yeah, you're right, it is, it is. Like, it's not a stereotype. But, like, I mean, you know, we're talking about... We've, we're talking about all this stuff about how the movie's scary because it, you know, triggers your fears of being a bad parent and it really shines a light on the difficult things about parenting. Nothing that we've spoken about is really all that much about trauma. Like, the scary parts of the film are about parenting, not trauma. So this film could have existed without... Oh, uh, no, because I think... I think- Probably one of the hard things she found to maybe bond with her son is the fact that his birth also marks her husband's death. But she, for no traumatic reason, could have not bonded with him. Well, I think even though she did bond with him because she does love him, I think the the thing that was getting in the way, which is why the Babadook ne- needed to be fed, was bonding further with him because of the trauma mm. that came mm. from his birth. I'm just saying, like, like, yeah. Like when the husband, when the Babadook takes the form of the husband too, who's dead, and he's like, you just need to give me the boy and then we can be together. Mm. It's like there was an exchange between the husband and the boy. So she's like, you know, if if only he wasn't here, I'd have my husband. And that's what she's sort of, the Babadook's trying to tempting her to do. And that's all, it's sort of like reversing the the change to herself. Yeah. Like I could go back to before we had kids. Yeah, and just be with my husband, which would be, I assume, in the real life, killing herself and her son. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I just think, I mean, in the grand scheme of things in terms of movies about mental illness, it is always trauma. You're right. We're not comfortable with mental illness. That doesn't happen. Like idiopathic, just... It just happens out of nowhere. You're right. And I and I think also the case being her son being a little bit precarious or mischievous or, or neurodivergent, mm. um, we might assume that's from the trauma. Mm. Um, mm. But it could also be not from the trauma too. And it could yeah. just happen to have those traits. And you're right. Like if we took the trauma away from this movie, we could still have a really in- important movie about struggling with parenting. Mm. You're right. And, and, and I think like... I mean, if there's anything on the nose about this movie besides the CGI. You said it this time. <laughs> it's my husband died in a car accident when we were driving to hospital when I was in labour with my son. <laughs> like yeah. that's a bit like, you know, I get that you need to up the ante with film and really raise the stakes and make it really oh, bad. <laughs> but like 
Just, just it's a bit much. Just dial it down a little bit. bit. Much. Just dial it down a little bit. You could get rid of the dead husband. I reckon you'd have pretty much the same film. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think it, it does make it more terrifying. Yeah, yeah, and how the and it, and it, uses it, it that. makes yeah. I, I agree. I yeah, agree. I don't think there's any other stereotypes that I really want to talk about. Going into helpful versus harmful, um, one thing I thought about uh, and I did read about as well um, was it could be seen as a bit of a problem that essentially what stops the Babadook from possessing and containing Amelia, what expels her, is her son helping her get out of him, which, you know, we don't love it. It's not great uh, when a child has actually a role of being a parent to their parent especially at that very tender age, that's um, not good for attachment. <laughs> it's just not great. Um, it's called it's, parentification. It's trauma. <laughs> and it, it's a big risk factor for Lots mental of illness, things, mental illness, yeah. disorders. Kids who are in traumatic or abusive or emotionally abusive relationships with their parents end up being the parent often or having to feel like they have to be the parent. But I think in this movie, like the tra- the significant trauma is already there. Um you know, it, it can't be that there's a perfect parent-child dynamic in this this movie. There already isn't. Um, so, you know, Samuel's throughout this whole film been trying to protect his mum by making all these weapons to kill these monster because he doesn't feel like he's protected. So he feels like he has to make these weapons. Mm. He doesn't think that Amelia can do it herself. He needs to take charge. Mm. And then, of course, she becomes the monster, so he needs to protect himself from her in the end, Yeah, which is terrifying and awful. Yeah. So it's really acknowledging that they need to care for each other and actually do it together in order to come through it. Like. Mm. Really, the only way out of their trauma is healing together. And even though Amelia's the one who's feeding the Babadook, Samuel's involved in that process. Like he's picking the worms as well with her. Yeah. And, um, you know, talking about we're going to go and feed the Babadook because it acknowledges that he's been traumatized too because she hasn't processed the trauma. And also, and I just think it's a really good message because it's really showing that intergenerational trauma is not just one person processing the trauma. Yeah. It's actually everyone doing it in some ways together um, in order f- for it to heal, really. Um, yeah. Both acknowledging we we both need to heal and we need to heal together and we need to rely on each other, but she's still in charge. And then he can heal because he knows, okay, she's actually in charge, but I'm. But we're also a team. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Like, And, I mean, in the sense of just the movie, it's neither helpful nor harmful because it's kind of just what happened. Mm. It's what needed to happen for them to survive, mm. that Samuel took, took adopted that caring, protecting role. Mm. I guess it's a little bit <clears throat> problematic because this movie is sort of didactic in a way because it's, it's, it's a morality tale. It's like mm. if you're traumatised, you can't, Hide from it. You need to hide from the Babadook. Yeah, you have to um, tend to it, etc. As we've already said, Um, and if you are taking this is a bit of a straw man. Mm -hmm. I'm taking it a little bit too far. But if you think of the movie as an instruction manual for trauma, which in some ways it kind of purports to be, Mm -hmm. yeah, getting your kids involved in managing your trauma is is a (laughs) textbook. Like you want to avoid that. If possible. But you, what you do, I think what you uh, – uh, we're probably looking a bit deep into this. I am anyway. But, you know, what you do want 
is for everyone to be aware of what everyone needs as well. So, if Like in the family, in the family, quote, unquote, system. The system, yeah. So if, you know, mum's having a bad day with her trauma, what can your child do to help that and to make sure everyone's okay? Give mum some space or, mm. you know. Well, maybe build a new weapon a- today just in case. Yeah, yeah. You need to, you know, brain, so brain the babadook. Everyone can still sort of work together. Mm. I don't think Jennifer Kent was thinking that. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll ask her. Did you? It is, I guess, harmful in that it is another mental illness is a monster. Yeah. Stereotype. Oh, not stereotype, but like trope. I don't know. It's not the person who's the monster. It's it's the mental illness that's the the monster. And it does feel like a monster sometimes. Yeah, I know. But when are they going to make a type 1 diabetes monster film? (laughs) <laughs> you know like no it's just a giant pile of sugar <laughs> sorry but like you don't see any other disease portrayed as a monster maybe can cancer mm. i did just you know there's this like classic painting of um gout <laughs> oh, really? it's like this little demon gnawing on mm. someone's toe you should mm-hmm. put it in the notes okay oh, no, i'm to. interested in that word so l- looking back yeah i guess diseases were portrayed as as monsters and ghouls and things mm. but in movies it's really only mental illness that takes the form of a monster mm. but like i guess know, because it's it, it's so it's poorly understood it's, it's also like social media or technology or things like that that like change that is depicted as monsters as well yeah Games. i mean I, I i mean i think i'm thinking more in terms of health mm, yeah but i think there's something about mental illness that's mysterious mm, and scary because, and easy to fit into a monster kind of mold whereas yeah. something like even you know some liver disease that we can't explain. It's like ah oh, well, there's probably some bullshit cell. Yeah, but no one probably knows what like, the liver disease but, is. I mean, like, you, but you know what I'm, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, people yeah. are like, ah oh, well, eventually we'll probably get that. But mental illness, like, that's spirits and shit. Well, it was spirits and shit back in the day. That's what people mm. thought it was. So I think it also stems from that because a lot of horror films stem from really old um, fairy tales and concepts mm. like that. So mm. yeah, you're right. But I also think that it's the fact that it's it feels like you're out of control with mm. me, when when mental illness shows up. It feels and often can be completely out of your control, and that's really terrifying. Yeah, I guess dementia and those sorts of neurodegenerative mm-hmm. things also come up as monsters sometimes. Yeah, hugely. And like you could also make a case that the fact that she finally expels the Babadook by saying "Get out of my house." Like Speak she finally Gan- says, Gandalf. yeah, and she finally was like, fuck off. And then he goes, yeah, like he, he's con- controllable and containable, which is a bit simplistic. Yeah. But I also think it's maybe a, a metaphor for the turning point of going, no, I'm not going to let you control me anymore. I'm going to take control of you. I am the one who knocks. You know, and it doesn't actually stop him. It just makes him more manageable. So, yeah. you know, I think I think it gets away with with that it can be more complex than that but it's it's okay yeah within the limits of being a movie yeah that's 90 minutes long fine go ahead fine um i read an article saying that they thought it was helpful in that the babadook sort of depicts how people push away people with mental illness and how frequently mental illness goes undiagnosed and it's easier to just write someone off as quote-unquote crazy uh, or like a lost cause than to actually look at the cause of their problems and try to help 
I'll link you the article because I really liked it, but it was just saying that the Babadook is kind of a representation of how society doesn't put enough emphasis on treating people with mental illness, but sort of takes it as out of sight, out of mind. Approach. Just shun, shuns people. Yeah. Like there's that struggling mum with the weird kid. Yeah. And we don't know just what to do. Them. We'll just, and we'll just, just just wait till they can move on to another school. And, you know, yeah, yeah. And I like that, um, and this was intentional. It's set in Australia, but it doesn't look particularly Australian where they are. Like the the, mm. the house is a very sort of that weird old style. Gray, it's so Australian short film. <laughs> but it's but it also could be like the the house in Hereditary or yeah. like something in the UK or Europe mm. or something. So mm. you know, it really could be anywhere. Mm. And I think it was filmed in Adelaide where there's a lot of – some of it does look quite European mm. in Adelaide. Yeah, I've sure. been there like twice. I don't know. <laughs> I've never been there. <laughs> so, you know, it is quite relatable as in as a whole in the way society sees mental illness. Yeah. It, like, I mean, it's helpful in the sense that it puts you in the shoes of people who are shunned and marginalised. Yeah. So, you know, if you have some unconscious bias against people with mental illness, which probably you don't if you're listening to this podcast, but there's probably, it probably reached people Mm. who felt that way and maybe gave them pause. Yeah. Maybe made them reconsider a little. Because, you know, there are moments where you're like, oh, she's cooked. Like, she should not be a parent. Like, what's going on? She's losing touch with reality and she's being a very bad mum. But then you also root for her at the same time and empathise and, you know, are really happy that she gets through it. I mean, like, you, you kind of only achieve that perspective it's easier to achieve that perspective when you're like, oh, there's a Babadook. There's like a monster. Yeah. So that, that makes you root for was, her because it turns no it into a, yeah. Mm. So in that way, I guess it makes the monster trope a bit more helpful because yeah. it, it gives you. Well, it, it externalizes what's going on for her. Mm, mm. That's and, interesting. Yeah. And I think that is interesting because that is also a common therapeutic uh, treatment for things like depression, anxiety, externalizing it from yourself gives you more power over it and takes a lot less blame and shame from yourself as mm. well. Like it's not me that thinks these things. It's the depression, the the serotonin that's gone out of my head <laughs> that makes me think these things and they're not true things. Mm. You know, mm. they're just things mm. that come into my head. Mm. And I have to say I think one thing that, could have been harmful for me about this film is that it's given my feelings of anxiety, shame, guilt, also body dysmorphia because of that's something I have. It gives that sort of a figure and it makes it more real in a way. Mm. Like I'm very conscious of not repeating the intergenerational patterns that have been given to me in our son and now seeing that sort of play out in film and giving it an actual monster makes me think, oh, this is what I could be if I don't, <laughs> if I don't don't keep those things in check. And that's really, like, it terrifies me. Is oh, it encouraging or scary? It's scary, but it's also, like, making it real so that you can actually do something about it at the same time. Like, mm, mm. Um, it makes me anxious to think about, but then it's also, like, everyone's got a babadook if they've gone through some trauma and they can't hurt us as long as we acknowledge they're there rather than ignore them. Mm. It's therapy. 
It's therapy, it's therapy, man. So, you know, if I was going back into private practice now and I was working with mums, which maybe I would do, I'd you use just, the bubble There'd be one session be that like, you just wheel just a, TV, the a TV with a v- <laughs> VCR underneath. I'm, t- I'm tired today. We're just going to watch a movie. <laughs> the bubble <dook. laughs> The last thing I just want to mention is the fact that the Babadook is now a pride icon. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was a bizarre like 24 hours. <laughs> so do you know how that came about? I, I mean, I know that it's all about it being like fabulous and living in the closet <laughs> and coming out of the closet, but that's about it. Well, actually, that's not how it started. Okay. So uh, when the Babadook made it to Netflix, they mislabeled it as Pride. That's right. <laughs> LGBTI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And everyone thought that was hilarious because there's <laughs> it, because, no because there's no LGBTI things in it. <laughs> but either the person watching it was like, well, this is clearly the Babadook's gay or it was just a, a misstep. But the um, LGBTI community just welcomed the Babadook <laughs> into their fray. Um, and now there's Babadook memes. There's people who dress up as Babadook in pride festivals and marches and it's <laughs> Amazing. Um, all the people in the movie love it, so <laughs> of course they would. Um, but it also, you know, probably helped with with it becoming even more popular and famous. And yeah. and there's definitely, like you say, that's definitely a, could be interpreted as a theme as well. Mm. But it also makes me like the Babadook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not designed it's to be It's a complex likeable. villain. Yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, if you don't want to think about it too deeply and be like, you know, looking at the film as a whole, like the Babadook is a, is a pride symbol, but we have to just acknowledge it and feed it and not give it too much, <laughs> not let it possess us. You still need to marry <laughs> just, someone of the you opposite sex. pretend you're hetero. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. Yeah. Okay. But that's um, not it. That- that's not what it is. <laughs> it was just a happy accident, yeah. as Bob, Bob Ross would say. <laughs> Final countdown. <laughs> All right, so lived experience. Ba-bam. I reckon half a point. Half a point because at least they had someone who's gone through parenthood in a tricky parenthood role. Half Steph, a point. It's your podcast. You can give it half a point, but I strongly advise you to give it zero points. Well, I'm going to be controversial. Give it half a point, and then if people decide they don't want to listen to the podcast anymore, then I will take that. <laughs> you can half listen a point to away. my. You can listen to my podcast where I give no points to anything. <laughs> um, accuracy. Uh, yeah, uh, we liked uh, it. One, uh, one yeah. point. Yeah, point. I give it a point because, you know, we're, we're not going through a DSM or anything, but it, it really nails the therapeutic journey of, of trauma grief process. Mm. Um, In a fun little package. Fun little package. Stereotypes, like I think I'm happy with what it does with stereotypes. It really more subverts them rather than anything else. But what do you think, Michael, Dr. Michael? I don't like mental illness as monster, but yeah. I liked um, the, the motherhood subvert. Ting. Yeah. <laughs> Motherhood subverting. <laughs> you heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> I like the subversion <laughs> of the motherhood stereotypes. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, and also, even though it is mental illnesses monster, I feel like it does a good job with it. Yeah, good job. And helpful or harmful, I think it's overwhelmingly helpful personally. Yeah, I think helpful. Mm. Like I think you could use this movie in therapy if you wanted to also terrify your patients. Yeah. 
Well, well, well. You'd be really... <laughs> it would you'd be, be scraping the well, bottom of the barrel if you would Having to watch... Make and watch. Maybe as homework. No, no. no but know, in a client who likes you know, like, horror hey, movies. Have you seen the bubble dog? Like, yeah. Well, you remember how... Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of like what you're going through right now. Mm. That's what we're doing, mm. you know. You know, at the end of Shaun of the Dead, he's got um, Nick Frost yeah. as, as a zombie playing Is like, that PlayStation a prequel the to the Babadook? And Hereditary, the big budget remake. <laughs> yes. It's like the American Wilfred. Remember that Australian Or the show, IT Wilfred? crowd, the, the yeah, US the version. versions of all, all the good all shows. All the good British shows. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. Our first COVID recording. Yeah, post-COVID. Thanks very much for joining us, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us. Please join us on our Instagram. Uh, We just went live before this recording. We'll do more lives to come. Follow us on TikTok. Follow us on Twitter. And join our Patreon where we will have lots of exciting things, including an interview with my dad. (laughs) Once I can rope it, rope mint to doing it. Bye. This podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app. She tries to ignore it. It ends up coming into her. Um, the more she- <laughs>